0: An Accursed Race by Elizabeth Gaskell This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org From Household Words, a weekly journal, conducted by Charles Dickens Number 282, Saturday, August 25th, 1855 We have our prejudices in England, or, if that assertion offends any of my readers, I will modify it. We have had our prejudices in England. We have tortured Jews, we have burnt Catholics and Protestants to say nothing of a few witches and wizards, we have satirized Puritans, and we have dressed up guys, but after all, I do not think we have been so bad as our continental friends. To be sure, our insular position has kept us free, to a certain degree, from the inroads of alien races, who, driven from one land of refuge, steal into another equally unwilling to receive them, and where, for long centuries, their presence is barely endured, and no pains is taken to conceal the repugnance which the natives of pure blood experience towards them. There yet remains a remnant of the miserable people called Cagos in the valleys of the Pyrenees, in the land near Bordeaux, and, stretching up on the west side of France, their numbers become larger in Lower Brittany. Even now, the origin of these families is a word of shame to them among their neighbors, although they are protected by law, which confirmed them in the equal rights of citizens about the end of the last century. Before then. They had lived, for hundreds of years, isolated from all those who boasted of pure blood, and they had been, all this time, oppressed by cruel local edicts. They were truly what they were popularly called, the accursed race. All distinct traces of their origin are lost. Even at the close of that period which we call the Middle Ages, this was a problem which no one could solve and as the traces, which even then were faint and uncertain, have vanished away one by one, it is a complete mystery at the present day why they were accursed in the first instance, why isolated from their kind, no one knows. From the earliest accounts of their states that are yet remaining to us, it seems that the names which they gave each other were ignored by the population they lived amongst, who spoke of them as Crestia, or Cago, just as we speak of animals by their generic names. Their houses or huts were always placed at some distance out of the villages of the country folk, who unwillingly called in the services of the cagos as carpenters or tilers or slaters, trades which seemed appropriated by this unfortunate race, who were forbidden to occupy land or to bear arms. The usual occupations of those times They had some small right of pasturage on the common lands and in the forests, but the number of their cattle and livestock was strictly limited by the earliest laws relating to the Cagos. They were forbidden by one act to have more than twenty sheep, a pig, a ram, and six geese. The pig was to be fattened and brilled for winter food. The fleece of the sheep was to clothe them, but if the said sheep had lambs they were forbidden to eat them only privilege arising from this increase was that they might choose out the strongest and finest in preference to keeping the old sheep. At Martin Mass the authorities of the Commune came round and counted over the stock of each cago. If he had more than his appointed number, they were forfeited. Half went to the Commune and half to the Bailey, or chief magistrate of the Commune, The poor beasts were limited as to the amount of common land which they might stray over in search of grass. While the cattle of the inhabitants of the commune might wander hither and thither in search of the sweetest herbage, the deepest shade or the coolest pool in which to stand on the hot days and lazily switch their dappled sides, the cago sheep and pig had to learn imaginary bounds beyond which, if they strayed, anyone might snap them up and kill them, reserving a part of the flesh for his own use, but graciously restoring the inferior parts to their original owner. Any damage done by the sheep was, however, fairly appraised, and the cago paid no more for it than any other man would have done. Did a cago leave his poor cabin and venture into the towns, even to render services required of him in the way of his trade, he was bidden by all the municipal laws to stand by and remember his rude old state. In all the towns and villages in the large districts extending on both sides of the Pyrenees, in all that part of Spain, they were forbidden to buy or sell anything eatable, to walk in the middle, esteemed the better, part of the streets, to come within the gates before sunrise, or to be found after sunset within the walls of the town." But still, as the cago were good-looking men, and, although they bore certain natural marks of their caste, of which I shall speak by and by, were not easily distinguished by casual passers-by from other men, they were compelled to wear some distinctive peculiarity which should arrest the eye. And in the greater number of towns it was decreed that the outward sign of a cago should be a piece of red cloth, sewed conspicuously on the front of his dress. In other towns the mark of Cagoteri was the foot of a duck or a goose hung over their left shoulder so as to be seen by any one meeting them. After a time the more convenient badge of a piece of yellow cloth cut out in the shape of a duck's foot was adopted. If any Cago was found in any town or village without his badge he had to pay a fine of five sous and to lose his dress. He was expected to shrink away from any passer-by, for fear that their clothes should touch each other, or else to stand still in some corner or by-place. If they were thirsty during the day which they passed in these towns, where their presence was barely suffered, they had no means of quenching their thirst, for they were forbidden to enter into the little cabarets or taverns. Even the water gushing out of the common fountain was prohibited to them, Far away in their own squalid village there was the Kago fountain and to drink of any other water was forbidden to the Kagoturi. A Cago woman having to make purchases in the town was liable to be flogged out of it if she went to buy anything except on a Monday a day on which all other people who could kept their houses for fear of coming into contact with the accursed race. In the Pays Basque The prejudices, and for some time the laws, ran stronger against the cago than any which I have hitherto mentioned. The Basque cago was not allowed to possess sheep. He might keep a pig for provision, but his pig had no right of pasturage. He might cut and carry grass for the ass, which was the only other animal he was permitted to own, and this ass was permitted because its existence was rather an advantage to the oppressor, who constantly availed themselves of the cago's mechanical skill, and was glad to have him and his tools easily conveyed from one place to another. They were repulsed by the state. Under the small local governments they could hold no post whatsoever, and they were barely tolerated by the church, although they were good Catholics and zealous frequenters of the mass. They might only enter the churches by a small door set apart from them, through which no one of the pure race ever passed. This door was low, so as to compel them to make an obeisance. It was occasionally surrounded by sculpture, which invariably represented an oak branch with a dove above it. When they were once in, they might not go to the holy water used by others. They had a benitier of their own, nor were they allowed to share in the consecrated bread when that was handed round to the believers of the pure race. The cagots stood afar off, near the door. There were certain boundaries, imaginary lines, on the nave and in the aisles, which they might not pass. In one or two of the more tolerant of the Pyrenean villages, the blessed bread was offered to the cagots, the priests standing on one side of the boundary and giving the pieces of bread on a long wooden fork to each person successively. When the cago died, he was interred apart in a plot of burying-ground on the north side of the cemetery. Under such laws and prescriptions as I have described, it is no wonder if he was generally too poor to have much property for his children to inherit, but certain descriptions of it were forfeited to the commune, The only possession of his which all who were not of his own race refused to touch was his furniture. That was tainted, infectious, unclean, fit for none but cagos. When such were, for at least three centuries, the prevalent usages and opinions with regard to this oppressed race, it is no wonder that we read of occasional outbursts of ferocious violence on their part. In the Bas Pyrenees, for instance, It is only about a hundred years since that the Cagos of Roi rose up against the inhabitants of the neighbouring town of Lourdes and got the better of them by their magical powers as it is said. The people of Lourdes were conquered and slain and their ghastly bloody heads served the triumphant Cagos for balls to play at ninepins with. The local parliaments had begun by this time to perceive how oppressive was the ban of public opinion under which the Cagos lay, and were not inclined to enforce too severe a punishment. Accordingly, the decree of the Parliament of Toulouse condemned only the leading Cagos, concerned in this affray, to be put to death, and that henceforward and for ever no Cago was to be permitted to enter the town of Lourdes by any gate but that called Cap des Portes. They were only to be allowed to walk under the rain-gutters, and neither to sit, eat, or drink in the town. If they failed in observing any of these rules, the Parliament decreed, in the spirit of Shylock, that the disobedient cagoes should have two strips of flesh, weighing never more than two ounces each, cut out from each side of their spines. In the 14th, 15th, and 16th centuries, it was considered no more a crime to brill a cago than to destroy obnoxious vermin. A nest of cago, as the old accounts phrase it, had assembled in a deserted castle of Mauvaisin about the year 1600, and certainly they made themselves not very agreeable neighbours, as they seemed to enjoy their reputation of magicians. And by some acoustic secrets which were known to them, all sorts of moaning and groanings were heard in the neighbouring forests very much to the alarm of the good people of the pure race, who could not cut off a withered branch for firewood, but some unearthly sounds seemed to fill the air, or drink water which was not poisoned, because the Cagos would persist in filling their pitchers at the same running stream. Added to these grievances, the various pilferings perpetually going on in the neighbourhood, made the inhabitants of the neighbouring towns and hamlets believe that they had a very sufficient cause for wishing to murder all the Cagots in the Château de Mauvaisin, but it was surrounded by a moat and only accessible by a drawbridge, besides which the Cagots were fierce and vigilant. Someone, however, proposed to get into their confidence, and for this purpose he pretended to fall ill close to their path so that on returning to their stronghold, they perceived him and took him in, restored him to health, and made a friend of him. One day when they were all playing at ninepins in the woods, their treacherous friend left the party on pretense of being thirsty, and went back into the castle, drawing up the bridge after he had passed over it, and so cutting off their means of escape into safety. Then, going up to the highest part of the castle, He blew upon a horn, and the pure race, who were lying in wait on the watch for some such signal, fell upon the cago at their games, and slew them all. For this murder I find no punishment decreed in the parliament of Toulouse or elsewhere. As any intermarriages with the pure race were strictly forbidden, and as there were books kept in every commune in which the names and habitations of the reputed cagoes were written. These unfortunate people had no hope of ever becoming blended with the rest of the population. Did a cago marriage take place, the couple were serenaded with satirical songs. They also had minstrels, and many of their romances are still current in Brittany. But they did not attempt to make any reprisals of satire or abuse. Their disposition was amiable, and their intelligence great. Indeed, It required both these qualities, and their great love of mechanical labour, to make their lives tolerable. At last they began to petition that they might receive some protection from the laws, and, towards the end of the seventeenth century, the judicial power took their side. But they gained little by this. Law could not prevail against custom, and in the ten or twenty years just preceding the French Revolution, The prejudice in France against the Cagots amounted to fierce and positive abhorrence. At the beginning of the 16th century, the Cagots of Navarre complained to the Pope that they were excluded from the fellowship of men and accursed by the Church because their ancestors had given help to a certain Count Raymond of Toulouse in his revolt against the Holy See they entreated His Holiness not to visit upon them the sins of their fathers. The Pope issued a bull on the 13th of May, 1515, ordering them to be well treated and to be admitted to the same privileges as other men. He charged Don Juan de Santa Maria of Pampelona to see to the execution of this bull, but Don Juan was slow to help, and the poor Spanish cago grew impatient, and resolved to try the secular power, they accordingly applied to the Cortes of Navarre and were opposed on a variety of grounds. First, it was stated that their ancestors had had nothing to do with Raymond, Count of Toulouse, or with any such knightly personage; that they were, in fact, descendants of Gahazi, servant of Elisha, Second Book of Kings, fifth chapter, twenty-seventh verse who had been accursed by his master for his fraud upon Naaman, and doomed he and his descendants to be lepers for evermore. Name, Kago, or Gahay, Gahay, Gahazites. What can be more clear, and if that is not enough, and you tell us that the Kagos are not lepers now, we reply that there are two kinds of leprosy, one perceptible, and the other imperceptible, even to the persons suffering from it. Besides, it is the country talk that where the cago treads, the grass withers, proving the unnatural heat of his body. Many credible and trustworthy witnesses will also tell you that if a cago holds a freshly gathered apple in his hand, it will shrivel and wither up in an hour's time, as much as if it had been kept for a whole winter in a dry room. They are born with tails, although the parents are cunning enough to pinch them off immediately. Do you doubt this? If it is not true, why do the children of the pure race delight in sewing on sheep's tails to the dress of any cago who is so absorbed in his work as not to perceive them? And their bodily smell is so horrible and detestable, that it shows that they must be heretics of some vile and pernicious description, for do we not read of the incense of good workers and the fragrance of holiness?' Such were literally the arguments by which the Cagots were thrown back into a worse position than ever as far as regarded their rights as citizens. The Pope insisted that they should receive all their ecclesiastical privileges. The Spanish priests said nothing, but tacitly refused to allow the Cagos to mingle with the rest of the faithful, either dead or alive. The accursed race obtained laws in their favour from the Emperor Charles V, but there was no one to carry these laws into effect. As a sort of revenge for their want of submission, and for their impertinence in daring to complain, their tools were all taken away from them by the local authorities. An old man and all his family died of starvation, being no longer allowed to fish. They could not emigrate, even to remove their poor mud habitations from one spot to another, excited anger and suspicion. To be sure, in 1695 the Spanish government ordered the alcaldes to search out all the cagos and to expel them before two months had expired, under pain of having fifty ducats to pay for every cago remaining in Spain at the expiration of that time. The inhabitants of the villages rose up and flogged out any miserable Cagos who might be in their neighbourhood. But the French were on their guard against this enforced eruption and refused to permit them to enter France. Numbers were hunted up into the inhospitable Pyrenees and there died of starvation or became a prey to wild beasts. They were obliged to wear both gloves and shoes when they were thus put to flight. Otherwise the stones and herbage they trod upon, and the balustrades of the bridges that they crossed, would, according to popular belief, have become poisonous. And all this time there was nothing remarkable or disgusting in the outward appearance of this unfortunate people. There was nothing about them to countenance the idea of their being lepers, the most natural mode of accounting for the abhorrence in which they were held. They were repeatedly examined by learned doctors, whose experiments, although singular and rude, appeared to have been made in the spirit of humanity. For instance, the surgeons of the King of Navarre in 1600 bled 22 cagos in order to examine and analyse their blood. They were young and healthy people of both sexes, and the doctors seem to have expected that they should have been able to extract some new kind of salt from their blood which should account for the wonderful heat of their bodies, but their blood was just like that of other people. Some of these medical men have left us an account of the general appearance of this unfortunate race, at a time when they were more numerous and less intermixed than they are now. The families existing in the south and west of France, who are reputed to be of Cago descent at this day, are, like their ancestors, tall, largely made, and powerful in frame fair and ruddy in complexion, with grey-blue eyes, in which some observers see a pensive heaviness of look. Their lips are thick, but well-formed. Some of the reports name their sad expression of countenance with surprise and suspicion. They are not gay like other folk. The wonder would be if they were. Dr. Guillon, the medical man of the last century, who has left the clearest report on the health of the Cagos, speaks of the vigorous old age they attained to. In one family alone, he found a man of seventy-four years of age, a woman as old, gathering cherries, and another woman, aged eighty-three, was lying on the grass, having her hair combed by her great-grandchildren. Dr. Guillon and other surgeons examined into the subject of the horribly infectious smell which the Cagos were said to leave behind them, and upon everything they touched, but they could perceive nothing unusual on this head. They also examined their ears, which according to common belief, a belief existing to this day, were differently shaped to those of other people, being round and gristly without the lobe of flesh into which the earring is inserted. They decided that most of the cagos whom they examined had the ears of this round shape but they gravely added that they saw no reason why this should exclude them from the goodwill of men and from the power of holding office in church and state. They recorded the fact that the children of the towns ran buying after any cago who had been compelled to come into the streets to make purchases, in allusion to this peculiarity of the shape of the ear, which bore some resemblance to the ears of sheep as they are cut by the shepherds in this district. Digyon names the case of a beautiful cago girl, who sang most sweetly, and prayed to be allowed to sing canticles in the organ loft. The organist, more musician than bigot, allowed her to come, but the indignant congregation, finding out whence proceeded that clear fresh voice, rushed up to the organ loft and chased the girl out bidding her remember her ears and not commit the sacrilege of singing praises to God along with the pure race. But this medical report of Dr. Guillaume's, bringing facts and arguments to confirm his opinion that there was no physical reason why the Cagots should not be received on terms of social equality by the rest of the world, did no more for his clients than the legal decrees promulgated two centuries before had done the French held with hudibras, that, he that's convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. And indeed, the being convinced by Dr. guyon that they ought to receive Cago as fellow-creatures, only made them more rabid in declaring that they would not. One or two little occurrences which are recorded prove that the bitterness of the repugnance for the Cagots was in full force at the time, just preceding the First French Revolution. There was a Monsieur d'Avedo, the curate of Loeb, and brother to the Seigneur of the neighbouring castle, who was living in 1780. He was well educated for the time, a travelled man, and sensible and moderate in all respects, but that of his abhorrence of the Cagos. He would insult them from the very altar, calling out to them as they stood afar off, O ye cago, damned for evermore! One day a half-blind cago stumbled and touched the censer borne before this Abbé de Lorbe. He was immediately turned out of the church and forbidden ever to re-enter it. One does not know how to account for the fact that the very brother of this bigoted Abbé, the seigneur of the village, went and married a cago girl. But so it was, and the abbé brought a legal process against him, and had his estates taken from him solely on account of his marriage, which reduced him to the condition of a cago, against whom the old laws were still in force. The descendants of this seigneur de l'Orbe are simple peasants at this very day, working on the lands which belonged to their grandfather. This prejudice against mixed marriages remained prevalent until very lately, the tradition of the Cago descent lingered amongst the people long after the laws against the accursed race were abolished. A Breton girl, within the last few years, having two lovers, each of reputed Cago descent, employed a notary to examine their pedigrees and see which of the two had least Cago in him, and to that one she gave her hand. In Brittany, the prejudice seems to have been more virulent than anywhere else. M. Émile Suvestre records proofs of the hatred born to them in Brittany, so late as 1835. Just lately, a baker at Hennebon, having married a girl of Cagot descent, lost all his custom. The godfather and godmother of a Cago child became Cagots themselves by the Breton laws, unless indeed the poor little baby died before attaining a certain number of days. They had to eat the butcher's meat condemned as unhealthy, but for some unknown reason they were considered to have a right to every cut loaf turned upside down with its cut side towards the door and might enter any house in which they saw a loaf in this position and carry it away with them. About thirty years ago there was the skeleton of a hand hanging up as an offering in a Breton church near Camp Elle and the tradition was that it was the hand of a rich Cago who had dared to take holy water out of the usual Benitier some time at the beginning of the reign of Louis the Sixteenth, which, an old soldier witnessing, he laid in wait, and the next time the offender approached the Benitier he cut off his hand and hung it up, dripping with blood, as an offering to the patron saint of the Church. The poor Cagot, in Brittany, petitioned against their opprobrious name, and begged to be distinguished by the appellation of Malandrin. To English ears, one name is much the same as the other, as neither conveys any meaning, but to this day the descendants of the Cagot do not like to have this word applied to them, preferring the term Malandrin. The French cagots tried to destroy all the records of their pariah descent in the commotions of 1789. But if writings have disappeared, the tradition yet remains, and points out such and such a family as Cagot or malondrats, or oiseilliers, according to the old terms of abhorrence. There are various ways in which learned men have attempted to account for the universal repugnance in which this well-made, powerful race are held. Some say that the antipathy to them took its rise in the days when leprosy was a dreadfully prevalent disease, and that the cagos are more liable than other men to a kind of skin disease, not precisely leprosy, but resembling it in some of its symptoms, such as dead whiteness of complexion, and swellings of the face and extremities. There was also some resemblance to the ancient Jewish custom in respect to lepers, in the habit of the people, who, on meeting a cagot, called out, Cagot, cagot, to which they were bound to reply, Pelut, pelut. Leprosy is not properly an infectious complaint, in spite of the horror in which the cagot furniture and the clothes woven by them is held in some places. The disorder is hereditary, and hence, say this body of wise men, who have troubled themselves to account for the origin of Cagoterie, the reasonableness and the justice of preventing any mixed marriages, by which this terrible tendency to leprous complaints might be spread far and wide. Another authority says, that though the cagos are fine-looking men, hard-working and good mechanics, yet that they bear in their faces and show in their actions reasons for the detestation in which they are held. Their glance, if you meet it, is the jetatura, or evil eye, and they are spiteful and cruel and deceitful above all other men. All these qualities they derive from their ancestor Gahazi, the servant of Elisha, together with their tendency to leprosy. Again it is said that they are descended from the Aryan Goths, who were permitted to live in certain places in Guienne and Longuedoc after their defeat by King Clovis. On occasion that they abjured their heresy and kept themselves separate from all other men for ever, the principal reason alleged in support of this supposition of their Gothic descent is the specious one of derivation: Xangot, Kago, Kago, equivalent to dogs of Goths. Again, they were thought to be Saracens coming from Syria. In confirmation of this idea was the belief that all cagos were possessed by a horrible smell. The Lombards also were an unfragrant race, or so reputed among the Italians. Witness Pope Stephen's letter to Charlemagne, dissuading him from marrying Bertha, daughter of Didier, King of Lombardy. The Lombards boasted of eastern descent and were noisome. The cagos were noisome. And therefore must be of eastern descent. What could be clearer? In addition, there was the proof to be derived from the name Cago, which those holding the opinion of their Saracen descent held to be Chien or Chasseur des Goths, because the Saracens chased the Goths out of Spain. Moreover, the Saracens were originally Mahometans, and as such obliged to bathe seven times a day, whence the badge of the duck's foot. A duck was a water-bird, Mahometans bathed in the water, proof upon proof. In Brittany, the common idea was they were of Jewish descent. Their unpleasant smell was again pressed into the service. The Jews, it was well known, had this physical infirmity which might be cured, either by bathing in a certain fountain in Egypt, which was a long way from Brittany, or by anointing themselves with the blood of a Christian child. Blood gushed out of the body of every cago on Good Friday. No wonder if they were of Jewish descent. It was the only way of accounting for so portentous a fact. Again, the cagots were capital carpenters, which gave the Bretons every reason to believe that their ancestors were the very Jews who made the cross. When first the tide of emigration set from Brittany to America, the oppressed Cago crowded to the ports, seeking to go to some new country where their race might be unknown. Here was another proof of their descent from Abraham and his nomadic people, and the forty years wandering in the wilderness and the wandering Jew himself were pressed into the service to prove that the Cagots derived their restlessness and love of change from their ancestors, the Jews. The Jews also practised arts magic, and the Cagots sold bags of wind to the Breton sailors, enchanted maidens to love them, maidens who never would have cared to them unless they had been previously enchanted, made hollow rocks and trees give out strange and unearthly noises, and sold the magical herb called bon succès. It is true enough that in all the early acts of the 14th century, the same laws apply to Jews as to cagos, and the appellations seem used indiscriminately. But their fair complexions, their remarkable devotion to all the ceremonies of the Catholic Church, and many other circumstances, conspire to forbid our believing them to be of Hebrew descent. Another very plausible idea is that they are the descendants of unfortunate individuals afflicted with goiters, which is, even to this day, not an uncommon disorder in the gorges and valleys of the Pyrenees. Some have even derived the word goiter from Got or goth, but their name, Crestia, is not unlike cretin, and the same symptoms of idiotism were not unusual among the Cago, although sometimes, If old tradition is to be credited, their malady of the brain took rather the form of violent delirium, which attacked them at new and full moons. Then the workmen laid down their tools, and rushed off from their labor to play mad pranks up and down the country. Perpetual motion was required to alleviate the agony of fury that seized upon the Cagos at such times. In this desire for rapid movement, The attack resembled the Neapolitan Tarantella, while in the mad deeds they performed during such attacks, they were not unlike the northern berserker. In Bern, especially, those suffering from this madness were dreaded by the pure race. The Bernais, going to cut their wooden clogs in the great forests that lay around the base of the Pyrenees, feared above all things to go too near the periods when the Cagutel "'seized on the oppressed and accursed people, "'from whom it was then the oppressor's turn to fly. "'A man was living with the memory of a man "'who had married a kago wife. "'He used to beat her right soundly "'when he saw the first symptoms of the kagutel, "'and having reduced her to a wholesome state "'of exhaustion and insensibility, "'he locked her up until the moon "'had altered her shape in the heavens. "'If he had not taken such decided steps,' say the oldest inhabitants, there is no knowing what might have happened. From the 13th to the end of the 19th century, there are facts enough to prove the universal abhorrence in which this unfortunate race was held. Whether called Cagot or gache in Pyrenean districts, Cacot in Brittany, or Vaqueros in Asturias, the great French Revolution brought some good out of its fermentation of the people, the more intelligent among them tried to overcome the prejudice against the Cago. In 1718, there was a famous cause tried at Biarritz relating to Cago rights and privileges. There was a wealthy miller, Etienne Arnault by name, of the race of Gots, Quagots, Pisigots, Astrogots or Gahets, as his people are described in the legal documents. He married an heiress, Sagot, or Cago, of Biarritz, and the newly married, well-to-do couple saw no reason why they should stand near the door in the church, nor why he should not hold some civil office in the commune, of which he was the principal inhabitant. Accordingly, he petitioned the law that he and his wife might be allowed to sit in the gallery of the church and that he might be relieved from his civil disabilities. This wealthy white miller, Etienne Arnaud pursued his rights with some vigour against the bailey of Labourde, the dignitary of the neighbourhood, whereupon the inhabitants of Biarritz met in the open air on the 8th of May, to the number of 150, approved of the conduct of the bailey in rejecting Arnaud, made a subscription, and gave all power to their lawyers to defend the cause of the pure race against Étienne Arnaud, that stranger, who, having married a girl of cagot blood, ought also to be expelled from the holy places. This lawsuit was carried through all the local courts, and ended by an appeal to the highest court in Paris, where a decision was given against Basque superstitions, and Étienne Arnaud was thenceforward entitled to enter the gallery of the church. Of course, the inhabitants of Biarritz were all the more ferocious for having been conquered, and four years later, a carpenter, Miguel Legaret, suspected of Cago descent, having placed himself in church among other people, was dragged out by the abbé and two of the jurats of the parish. Legaret defended himself with a sharp knife at the time, and went to law afterwards, the end of which was that the abbé and his two accomplices were condemned to a public confession of penitence, to be uttered while on their knees at the church door, just after high mass. They appealed to the Parliament of Bordeaux against this decision, but met with no better success than the opponents of the miller anneau Legarette was confirmed in his right of standing where he would in the parish church. That a living cagot had equal rights with other men in the town of Biarritz seemed now ceded to them, but a dead cagot was a different thing. The inhabitants of pure blood struggled long and hard to be interred apart from the abhorred race. The Cagos were equally persistent in claiming to have a common burying ground. Again the texts of the Old Testament were referred to, and the pure blood quoted triumphantly the precedent of Uzziah the leper, 26th chapter of the second book of Chronicles, who was buried in the field of the sepulchres of the kings, not in the sepulchres themselves. The cagoes pleaded that they were healthy and able-bodied, with no taint of leprosy near them. They were met by the strong argument so difficult to be refuted, which I have quoted before. Leprosy was of two kinds, perceptible and imperceptible. If the Cagots were suffering from the latter kind, who could tell whether they were free from it or not? That decision must be left to the judgment of others. One sturdy Cago family alone, Bellon by name, kept up a lawsuit claiming the privilege of common sepulture for forty two years, although the cure of Biarritz had to pay one hundred livres for every Cago not interned in the right place. The inhabitants indemnified the curate for all these fines. Monsieur de Romagne, Bishop of Tarbes, who died in seventeen hundred and sixty eight was the first to allow a cago to fill any office in the church. To be sure, some were so spiritless as to reject office when it was offered to them, because, by so claiming their equality, they had to pay the same taxes as other men, instead of the roncal or poll tax levied on the cagos, the collector of which had also a right to claim a piece of bread of a certain size for his dog at every cago dwelling. Even in the present century it has been necessary in some churches for the archdeacon of the district, followed by all his clergy, to pass out of the small door previously appropriated to the cagos in order to mitigate the superstition which even so lately made the people refuse to mingle with them in the house of God. A cago once played the congregation at Laroc, tricks, suggested by what I have just named. He slyly locked the great parish door of the church, while the greater part of the inhabitants were assisting at mass inside, put gravel in the lock itself, so as to prevent the use of any duplicate key, and had the pleasure of seeing the proud pure-blooded people file out with bended head through the small low door used by the abhorred cagot we are naturally shocked at discovering from facts such as these the causeless rancour with which innocent and industrious people were so recently persecuted. Gentle reader, am I not rightly representing your feelings? If so, perhaps the moral of the history of the accursed races may be best conveyed in the words of an epitaph on Mrs. Mary Hand, who lies buried in the churchyard of Stratford-on-Avon. What faults you saw in me, pray strive to shun, and look at home, there's something to be done End of an Accursed Race by Elizabeth Gaskell read by Phil Benson in Sydney, Australia